to bond or not to bond with your livestock guardian dog. Conventional wisdom suggests that an LGD can only truly bond to its stock or to its people. Take your pick. But the Armenian Gomper may cause you to doubt that way of thinking. Could the Gomper really be an effective, people-focused livestock guardian? Welcome to Farm Dog. This is Farm Dog, the podcast about the working dogs of farming, ranching, homesteading, and rural living. Farm Dog is presented by Goats on the Go, a national network of independent business owners who provide sustainable weed and brush control for their customers using goats. Want to put goats to work on your vegetation problem? Interested in launching your own goat grazing business? The place to start is goatsonthego.com. Hi everyone, happy Thanksgiving, and thank you for listening to Farm Dog. My name's Aaron Steele, I'm the host of the podcast. And before we start today's episode, I'm gonna ask a favor of you. If you've enjoyed any of the past episodes of Farm Dog and you listen to the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please do me a favor and leave a rating or a review for the podcast so others can hear about it. Ratings are great. Just leave a number of stars that you would rank our podcast, or if you're so inclined, leave us a few kind words in a review. These things help tremendously in spreading the word about the availability of the podcast and its the quality of its content, which helps us attract more listeners and helps to ensure that the Farm Dog podcast will be able to go on far into the future. Thanks again so much. Have a great holiday and on with the episode. Welcome to Farm Dog. I'm glad you joined us today. I am really pleased uh, to have a guest with me today to talk about a uh, what is probably an obscure breed to many of us in the livestock guardian dog world. Uh, her name is Cassandra Shackleton, and she's going to talk to us about the Armenian Gomper. Um, Cassandra represents um, the Armenian Gomper Club, or at least is in, involved with that club. So she's going to share some of her personal experience and history with the with this dog breed, but she also can tell us a little bit about the club she's involved with. So Cassandra, with that, welcome. I'm glad you could join us. Uh, could you just tell us a little bit about your background, where you're located, um, what your farm is like, and how you ever stumbled onto this unique breed of dog? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Erin, for having me. Um, basically, I'm located in uh, Ontario, Canada, um, kind of in a southern part of uh, of Canada, really more more southern than you can get in most parts of Canada. But um, I live on a on a farm where uh, we also work full time. Um, sometimes of the year off the farm, sometimes located working off on the farm, but still working full time um, off the farm. And essentially, we have um, some beef cattle. Uh, we also started out, we had a lot of poultry. And basically, when we were, we were constantly losing poultry um, to coyotes, predators, some of them, raccoons, that sort of thing. Um, didn't really have had experience having farm dogs, but not necessarily a livestock guardian dog. Um, and as it was just becoming yeah, frustrating, you know, you build up a flock, you whether it's it's for personal use or you know you're trying to turn a profit whatever it's just frustrating when you're constantly losing livestock so um started to look into some options for a livestock guardian dog and stumbled upon the armenian gomper um one of the more shining attributes i guess that drew us to 
the breed was the fact that they they bond closely with their family members, um, are good with kids, and and just not an overly. Um, they are somewhat of a rare breed, but haven't really been bred selectively in terms of phenotype um, and and what they look like. Um, so they hadn't a lot of that selective breeding that we sometimes see. Uh, they've been more bred more so for their working abilities than necessarily for a phenotype. So um, with that in mind and just having something different and original, we uh, we purchased our um, two actually at the same time, um, Armenian Gompers and, and started working with those. And as um, there really was a small group of people and we found some good folks that were helping to, to support the sustainability of, of long-term helping support the breed and maintain the land race attributes of that breed. And we, we became more interested in, in helping that initiative. And, and that's kind of how we, how we kind of became more familiar with the breed and start going down that road. Yeah. Okay. Wonderful. So are there other breeders in your area or how did you become connected with the association? It was mostly through, um, in internationally with the, the U.S. as well as Canada. Uh, there is a sister club in the United States um, who's done a lot of work with importing um, new lines mm -hmm. just to maintain because when there is a rare breed and there's not a lot of um, genetic basis to to work off of domestically, um, there's obviously a lot of work that needs to be done to import new genetics so that um, you have some outcrosses and to maintain that the healthy status that they they are known for um so as we became more familiar and had some folks we were working with that that had shepherds and had reliable sources of, of people that were able to source aboriginal gompers as opposed to fighting lines that could potentially make their way over mm -hmm. to north america so um yeah we we became more familiar with uh, the right people that were there's that were sourcing them through um, reliable shepherds in Armenia. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So you mentioned you have cattle and uh, chickens. So you primarily got the gomper originally just to, to protect your chicken flock. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. You got it. It, uh, it kind of went that way um, for the poultry flock. Some poultry we have is here all year. Um, some more seasonally for meat production. Um, but yeah, that was the primary. And and we have found that even, even with the cattle, like we didn't lose a lot of cattle necessarily. Um, personally, I do know in the area, like the calves, the calves, they will get chased by coyotes. They will. So it, it's definitely helped where we haven't seen near as many predators or even like you can hear the cattle if they're running or if they're being chased. Um, definitely haven't had it near the experience as we had prior because they're there. They're letting their presence be known. And basically it's pushing those predators back to other other locations that are probably an easier target. Sure. So um, so many things to ask you here. But um, before I lose track of this one, I think that's a, that's a really interesting point. And that's been brought up uh, in previous episodes too. We don't typically think of cattle as needing livestock guardian dogs to protect them from from predators and that may be in terms of absolute mortality that may be the case but 
a stressed animal is an animal that doesn't produce well. It doesn't hold weight and condition well. It perhaps doesn't yeah. reproduce well. So uh, dogs yeah. can be important to a cattle herd just as much as a sheep or a goat herd or, or flock of chickens. Absolutely. I agree. And even especially if you're calving on pasture, it's a pretty sensitive time. It, you know, somebody, it's much harder for a cow to defend themselves and defend the others because often they'll go off on their own to calves. So it's not as though it's unheard of to lose calves, um, just likely not as common as say with sheep or with goats, but sure. um, certainly, certainly possible. Yeah. And what kind of predators were you dealing with with your chicken flock? Mostly coyotes or others as well? Yeah, I would say coyotes did the most damage. Um, when you have a raccoon or something come in, they they pluck a few here and there. But when you have a coyote show up, it's it's pretty much the whole flock that seems to be gone in a swipe. Because okay. well, and that's the thing, it's seldomly one coyote. I'm sure you know. Right. Um, right. Yeah. So I'd like to come back to. Um, what your experience with was like before and after adding your first guardian dogs with respect to your, your chicken flock. But first tell us a little bit more about the Gomper, where it comes from, what its history is, even what it looks like, what it build, what its build is like. Yeah. So they do really range in size as well as coat color, coat length, uh, being a Landrace breed, you will see a wide variety. Um, we aim more so for a, a breed description as opposed to a, a breed standard. Uh, so the coat, it needs to shed clear. It needs to shed clean each season so that it's not a high maintenance uh, thing. And also to, to ensure the animal stays healthy and they aren't getting matted um, and everything else that comes along with that. Size-wise, there's definitely, depending on the region where they rain from, um, you can have very large gompers compared to, say, a smaller that size, maybe more like a 60, 65 pound uh, dog that would be probably more apt to in a pack be that surveillance type mm. guardian dog that's, you know, surveilling more of the perimeter, um, whereas the larger dogs probably more so going in for, for that kill or when the threat was was closer and there needed to be some more backup. Um, so yeah, a real range in size, but definitely when it comes to a breed description, um, be able to move and travel far distances, um, structurally sound, thick, thick neck, thick head to give them that, that strength and that, um, that force that they need in their, in their front end when they are faced with in the, in the conflict situation, um, and everything from even teeth, um, you know, how did the teeth align has all been very important. Um, how the, the back legs, the configuration, so that it doesn't cause them any pain when they're traveling for a long distance um, if needed, because they are from nomadic herds where they're traveling quite a distance in, in sometimes over days. So um, it is important. Definitely, we don't maybe not see quite the distance needing to be traveled where we are, but um, where they rain from, that that is very important. So we do see a lot of those traits carry over. Um, so when we're, we're looking at, say, breeding a pair or potentially matching up two mates, that's what we're more so looking at is to try and is match those characteristics so they don't become 
too heavy or too large where they can't perform or have the agility that they need to to be effective. Um, so it's just kind of a balancing. And same with the coat. Like you don't want to end up with something that's so thick and so unmanageable that isn't shedding clear just because we, we enjoy a big fluffy dog. Um, right. Those things. So um, hopefully that helps explain. Yeah, absolutely. So it it is um... – it's a rough coat or a fluffy coat. It's not a, a smooth coat like an Anatolian Shepherd or an Akbash, correct? Well, there will be there could be some that have that okay. smooth, wiry coat, and there could be some that have the the thicker, fluffier coat. So you really you really will see a large range. There really is no set standard for coat. Right. Okay. So let's let's go ahead and tackle this issue that you brought up earlier of phenotype, meaning a description of a breed according to what it what its physical observable physical traits are, rather That's than it. than its um, the less obvious genetic traits. So in in these uh, more obscure dogs, and particularly dogs that have been reserved for work for generations, they tend to have Am I correct in saying that they tend to have less consistent phenotypes because they're selected more for um, their behavior and their working traits than they are for those those physical characteristics? Yeah, yeah, I would say you're correct in saying that. Um, depending on on where they were derived and and later on, say where dogs were moved um, in the in Armenia. Some of them went more so towards a certain phenotype if it was a certain region that was after that phenotype. But that's completely been because of human selection or human human nature as opposed to the dogs doing their their regular working, their regular um, nomadic movements. Um, right. Okay. Yep. So because these dogs... Um... First of all, they come from a region that is not and have been put to use in a way that they're not terribly concerned about appearances, except to the degree that those appearances contribute to their ability to live and thrive and do their jobs. Um, so you end up with weight is a, and size is a perfect example, right? I mean, generally, livestock guarding dogs are large dogs, but you mentioned a 65 pound dog, you know, that's you know, many Labrador retrievers are that big yeah. and yet you can have really big gompers as well. And as long as they're performing the job adequately, that's, that's okay because we haven't created a breed standard as if we're going to go show the dog and we're all trying to meet one standard with every breeding. Exactly. Exactly. And it's more based on their, their character and their working attributes that, that we're really looking for. And Essentially, if you're in a high predator or even a medium predator situation, one dog that's 120 pounds isn't necessarily going to fare any better than, you know, a, a pack of dogs that's working together, say two or three of a smaller size that, um, like just keeping that in mind, right? Like a single dog, regardless of the size, isn't always bigger, isn't always better. Right. Absolutely. And as you get bigger, you tend to lose agility and speed also, which yeah. might be important depending on your environment. 
So, so in terms of environment, the, the Armenian gamper, no surprise, comes from the region around Armenia and, and Georgia. If I, I think I have that right. Uh, the Caucasus Mountains. Is that a fair description of like where they're historically uh, were produced from? Yeah, exactly. You got it um, right in that region. And, and as we've seen over the few years, Armenia is shrinking as neighboring countries kind of push those bordering limits and essentially take over some of that land. So, um, you know, the, the borders and the areas where the, the dogs, the dogs don't know that, right? So they are, depending on the direction, whether they've been taken by their shepherds or, or the dogs have traveled themselves. But yeah, that's, they're all very closely related within those regions. Okay. All right. So um, maybe some of our audience members can sympathize with me. I am not a world geography buff, so I actually had to get on Google Maps and, and look at the area because I assumed, you know, we had talked about the Karakachan and some uh, other breeds from that um, Euro-Asia area. And and I assumed that this dog are kind of derived from the same place as the Karakachan. But if you the Karakachan is from Bulgaria and um, the Gompers from the Ar region around Armenia. And if you look at them, they're separated by mountain ranges and um, the Black Sea. So there's a fair, I, I suppose there's a fair chance that there has, sorry, I'm doing a bad job of articulating this. Um, I had always assumed that all of these dogs had uh, originated from the same dogs that they just spread out over the region and really if you tracked it back and did the the dna work you would find that they're all virtually the same dogs but with the gomper you could imagine that it has been a relatively protected breed in terms of its genetics and kind of takes has taken on its own status um as an autonomous breed and uh, therefore also probably its own Tra um, not just physical traits, but performance traits and personality and demeanor. So tell us a little bit about um, the Gomper in terms of um, what its personality is like and its working style. Yeah, I would say they're definitely, they do very, very well when they can bond closely with their shepherds, with their people. Um, there's a lot of ideas out there that a, a mature guardian dog will will train a younger one. Um, that's not to say that it, it doesn't help or it doesn't, um, you know, facilitate that. But um, we do feel that when livestock guardian dogs are raised in their in their Aboriginal location, if you think about how they're raised with the shepherds um, on pasture, basically living at foot. Um, they do really require that that close bond with their shepherd looking for that guidance, looking for that direction so that so that they care what you say, think or what you say. Um, so when you have that feedback of whether they're you know doing something you approve of or disapprove of, that they will pick up on those cues more readily if if you take that time to put in that that bond early on in their life. Um, and then it just helps them to build those good decision-making skills as they become older. Um, they aren't as fearful 
if you're able to be there and guide that and reassure them when they're when they're nervous or when they're scared or not sure um, if you can help curb some of that anxiety in early years then you're going to come up with a more stable more even keeled temperament um, that sort of thing so I think that they're how they've been raised how they've been um, raised for thousands of years we can probably take a lot of lessons from that how we're raising them here in North America um, and we do see a lot of positive results that come out of that that early on uh, bond that can that can really result in a in an easier transition as the dog moves to more independent work on their own okay interesting so that um that benefit of a close bond with the shepherd do you think that that is a unique characteristic of um the gomper compared to other livestock guardian breeds because we spend so much time talking about yeah. how be careful what the guardian dog bonds to because whatever it bonds to that's where it's going to be that's what it wants to be a part of that's what it's going to protect is is yeah. the gomper unique in that way i Personally, I mean, I don't want to speak for other people and other people's breeds, but I don't think it's necessarily unique to the Armenian Gamper. I do think that we see we've really promoted that within our within our community, and I think that we've seen the positive result from that. Um, I do think that they are maybe a little bit more um, in tune and picking up on your cues and, and maybe possibly because of the way they have been um, bred and maintained that, that Aboriginal working and maybe because they've been given that opportunity and, and living at foot that we, we see that connection. Um, but to answer your question, I don't think it's necessarily just unique to the Gump. I do think that they definitely have a way of what am I trying to say? They they really do um, they do excel when when they're raised in that environment. So um, I've also seen them work quite well in in a home setting where they they have the space to guard and protect with adequate fencing. They are happy being a family dog with with obviously with the a purpose and a duty, not just on a small small uh, lot, but they do have that ability to be content when they have that close connection with their, with their human okay. people. So this, this is going to be a tough one. I'll pod, apologize in advance for this question, but just kind of um, yeah. hypothesize with me. Does, how many Gompers do you have right now? I have seven here. Seven. Oh my gosh. Okay. Do your dogs um work for you and protect your livestock out of a bond with you and therefore a desire to make you happy and you have somehow shown them what, that what they want to do to make you happy is guard your livestock or are is there a co-bond are they bonded with you but at the same time bonded to the livestock and therefore feel this natural pull to protect the livestock or is it, there's no point in differentiating? Yeah, I would say that every dog is a little bit unique in the sense that definitely I feel as though they are bonded to me. We've 
we've done that individually with each dog um, to make sure we establish that bond. Um, some of them most definitely will say cuddle up with the other animals or be more drawn to, you know, lay with them or rest with them more so than the others. Um, is that their unique personality? I think so, because even some of them are even more nurturing to say the other dogs, right? So they just seem to be more open to having that bond with other animals. But um, I do believe that if, you know, having that bond without having that bond initially with the human, I think when they are in that situation where they're trying to decide, you know, how do I react to this situation? Should I be, should I be reacting? Should I be fearful? Or should I be scaring that thing off? If they don't have that bond with you and you're trying to give them that guidance in that moment, they're definitely not going to listen if they haven't been given the opportunity to, to listen or to establish that bond early on. Sure. If that and so I, I don't know if I've really answered your question, but I do feel like it's kind of two part. Um, I do think that some dogs more naturally will bond to other animals more easily, whereas some really want that human bond even more so than, and they definitely have a sense of, a sense of duty, right? Where they, they know that this is home and this is where I get fed and this is our livestock. And I accept the livestock because you do accept the livestock, but definitely some build more of a, a bond more readily with the livestock than others. Okay. So you don't necessarily believe that a bond with the livestock or a bond with you, that one replaces the other, that you can't, you can't bond really closely with your dog because then they won't bond to the livestock, that it's mutually exclusive. You don't necessarily buy that line of thinking. No, I don't No. Okay. Um, yeah, just from my personal experience, I, I don't, I'm maybe, I'm sure I know there's different lines of thinking out there, but um, it just does seem like if it's not approached in the right way, and a dog is kind of left to their own decisions, that they don't always make the best decisions. Okay. Um, that, thank you. That's really helpful. Appreciate you going on that little <laughs> thought experiment with me, but um so I, there are probably some audience members out there thinking, oh, I found it. The Armenian gamp Gamper, that is the dog. That's the livestock guardian dog that can lay on my couch, sleep at the doorstep, be on the porch, play with the kids all day long, week in, week out, until we have a predator problem. And then I can just go lead it out to the chickens or the lambs and tell it to stay there and it will be fine. And I can have the best of both worlds. So when you say it's a, they bond well with people and it's important to have that bond, is it possible to interpret that too far in the wrong direction? Yeah, I would agree. And I thank you if, if it came across that way. I definitely agree with you 100%. It's not that simple. Um, yeah. While you're working on that human bond, it's definitely just as equally important to expose them to those animals, take them out there to do chores daily, um, accompany you while you're feeding those other animals and and perhaps leave them for extended periods of time around animals when it's appropriate to do so. When they are still full of energy and want to play, that's not the best time to leave them unattended with your livestock. Um, 
But I think continuing to expose them to that, if you leave them up at the yard and they're raised as a house dog and then you hope to throw them in your pasture at a, you know, a year old or two years old, it's likely not going to go well because that's not what they're familiar with. They haven't been exposed to that um, continuously throughout that training period, throughout that conditioning. So I don't think that that's, it's definitely not, you want to introduce them early on to those livestock, but for sure work on the the human bond early on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very good. So do you, does the Armenian Gomper have a um, characteristic working style um, as in terms of, you know, really tend to stay close to the animals or tend to be more patrolling or tend to be assertive and go out, find predators versus just protect the animals when predators are nearer? Or is there that's the same variation we talked in, about in phenotype? Does that exist in working style too within the breed? Yeah, I would say that it would, it depends on the individual dog. And I think also the pack they establish works working amongst each other, um, whether that's re relieving each other so they can rest, uh, one can rest and the other one goes patrolling. Um, or if it's, it means the more confident dog is, is out patrolling. Um, I shouldn't say maybe not say more confident, but if, if one is out patrolling and one is staying with the livestock, it, it really does seem to depend on the, the working relationship they establish with each other. Um, I would say in general, they definitely aren't a charge and figure out what it is later. They're more apt to stay and alert and make that noise, let their presence be known, um, as opposed to chasing the unknown down. Um, that's for sure. I've, I've seen that more commonly amongst all of them. Okay. Uh, you made me think of a question that I probably should have been asking every livestock guardian dog person I've talked to, but so the, you kind of implied that the dogs take on different roles depending on the dynamic of the pack, uh, the other livestock guarding dogs on the farm. Um, do, is that a perpetual thing that once a, a dog fills that role, that will be that dog's role forever? Or if you have a, a dog that is more patrolling and more assertive, if that dog dies or, or is no longer a part of the pack, have you noticed other dogs stepping up to fill that role or is their role defined by who they are as an individual? I think it's a very good question. And from firsthand experience, I definitely can't fairly answer just because I haven't gotten to that point where I've lost pack members, so to speak, where someone's had to fill that role. So um, I would, it would be interesting to see, but I just can't say for sure from firsthand experience. Right. Yeah. And I, I don't think many of us could answer that question because it takes, that would take a fairly big sample size and even, yeah, you know, seven, eight, 10 dogs is a lot of dogs for most farms. And I don't, not even sure you could observe that. It would take yeah. a long time to observe that even with that many dogs. Yeah, certainly. And I think too, it depends on the dynamic, like you say, of, of who's working together because while we might have seven dogs, they don't all work together all the time, right? So um, they do take a, a rotational, some some get along better with others than others do. So, and it keeps it interesting when they can, you know, 
patrol a different pasture, um, patrol and, and look after different livestock, um, be in a different environment, have a different working partner within reason, obviously, um, but knowing their personalities and their strengths and weaknesses, I can shuffle that around. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. oh. Okay. Um, and what about bark? Uh, how much bark does the gomper have generally? I know there's lots of differences between individuals, but would you say that generally the breed is a quiet, more quiet breed or a, a loud, frequently alerting breed? I would say in general, um, a quieter breed. I do find that there's certain things that just bother certain dogs. <laughs> you know, some dogs really are alerted to overhead predators more so. Um, and I do find that the younger ones, they, they tend to, to sit and wait for that cue or, or be alerted by an older dog that is barking before they also take the initiative to, to speak up. Um, but yeah, I think it does depend, like certain things tend to bother certain dogs. Um, but if I, if they're barking, I most certainly go and look because it's not like they are usually barking for a reason. Even if it's somebody parked on the road that isn't usually there, they're still barking for a reason. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that really helps. Um, I guess that's, that's what I was looking for. I have a Marema and um, others have talked about Maremas as being alerting to the right things, but then continuing to bark. For it, rather incessantly at times. Yeah. And I have found that to be true with my Marema. There's probably lots of individuals who aren't that way. Um, I find it not to be really a problem though, because where we live, it's just not that big of an issue. But um, I can certainly see how a quieter dog that alerts to the right things and stops barking when there's not a threat is really helpful because you don't want to put on your boots and coat all the time and go outside every time a dog is barking. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I do find that, you know, the dogs, they all know their names. So if you know, you know, it's not a threat and you can reassure them and they can hear you from a distance that you reassure them that it's okay, you know, right. it's okay, good girl. I find that they do, they settle quicker than if, if you just let them be, let them, because they're wondering, you know, is anyone else seeing this? <laughs> Should I be concerned? <laughs> Sure, sure. Uh, you you gave a quick reference way back in the beginning of our conversation here to um, fighting lines. And I don't know if many of our audience members caught that, but some of them might be wondering, well, that was interesting. Let's come back to that. Yeah. So here we are. Talk to us about fighting lines and why that was worth mention early on here. Well, um, basically, it's it's one of those things. It's a it's a cultural shift that we're likely not as familiar with um or most of us maybe aren't here in north america but um culturally speaking dog fighting is a, a sport if you will a, um, a pastime that some individuals choose to take uh, part in and when you have strong dogs that are capable of taking down packs of coyotes um, definitely those breeds are looked to as a, a candidate for dog fighting. So, um, you know, it doesn't take long over a few short generations. If you have some individuals that maybe have a, a different end result, a different 
objective in mind for that dog, it doesn't take long for them to be selectively breeding in a direction that you really, for attributes you really don't want to see in a livestock guardian dog. Um, they will be far more reactive to to all dogs, really, and even have a stronger prey drive, which could potentially translate onto livestock, um, other pack members, uh, that sort of thing in fighting lines, if that's continues to be bred and continues to proliferate and sometimes unknowingly to people who are who are purchasing or breeding and you know they hear a breed name that might might be associated with a livestock guardian dog but in certain areas if it's been used for uh, dog fighting those same attributes that you are looking for won't won't necessarily be there so um it's just really important to us that we we really limit that and really identify it and and reduce it um as soon as as soon as possible really um we don't really want to be associated with with those attributes because it's just not a direction we want the breed to be going okay and we're ta we're talking about folks developing dogs for fighting um and accidentally importing them from Armenia? Or are we talking about that that's been the case here in the United States already, that this breed has already been um, developed yeah. for fighting here? I would say uh, more so the first in that it was, you know, lines that were being bred there for fighting lines, but somebody comes looking for a livestock guardian dog mm. And, you know, they, they have the dog that will work. They have a livestock guardian dog. They, they still see it in their own mind as something that can be used for a livestock guardian work. Right, right. So I think that for those of us who are interested in these, you know, the great variety of livestock guardian dogs out there and their fascinating history and culture and the geography that goes along with that, like we owe a debt of gratitude to the people who've done the on the ground work to identify the right lines and import them to North America. And that would go for the Gomper, the Karakachan, and probably several other breeds as well. I mean, that, how do you even go about doing the research to find the right lines of dogs? I think it, it really comes down to having, like you say, the right people on the ground and the right people looking for the right things and really having a good working relationship with them. Um, our, our president in the United States has really gone to a lot of, to, to build those relationships and to have that, you know, those key people in Armenia that, that we work with to, to ensure that isn't happening. Um, so I agree because otherwise just to be importing from an unknown source or even what might be, have thought to be a reputable breeder might not always be the case, right? So um, really having those relationships with people that are able to to go on site, to see the dogs working at their camps um, with the shepherds is, is so important. So um, it really goes a long ways, yeah. Mm -hmm. What's the status of the genetic base for the Gomper here in North America? Do we have a breeding pool that's adequate or will we be needing to import more dogs from overseas for the foreseeable future? Um, it's definitely, I would say 
I would hazard to say it's definitely not sustainable to in a lot of work has been done, but there's still a lot of work to do. And also ensuring that the genetics that we have here are used appropriately and um, outcrosses are, you know, carefully bred and that we're not overbreeding, say, the same pairs to end up with the same basis of all our lines, if you know what I mean. Um, so really what we're striving or aiming to do is is no more than three breeding pairs um, per individual dog and then to be breeding them to a different mate to encourage that outcrossing. Um, all of that with genetic testing, um, some working evaluations, uh, as well as health clearance testing. So anything that's imported is subject to that testing. Um, from there, we definitely don't claim that everything is 100% free and clear, but by having the information, you can make an educated decision about who who should and should not be bred together to reduce some of that, um, the likelihood of the health concerns. Um, but yeah, long term, we're still we're still working to help um, preserve those genetics, and then looking for options whether that's um, importation of semen or continuing to outcross females that are here. Um, also, preserve semen of males that are here for potential for future use, that sort of thing. So, um, but yeah, I think we'll definitely, we, we have the ability, we just need to exercise caution when we're going about our breeding, breeding programs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And do you produce puppies yourself? Or are you a breeder? Um, yeah, I do. Um, seldomly we do, but yeah, yeah. We try to just kind of, it's working on the, on the working and the the evaluations that come, we'd like to see, you know, how they're going to work before we go ahead and and breed. So long term, that is the goal, but it's not the the only goal, I guess. Okay, all right. If do do me a favor and describe for me the ideal puppy you're trying to produce. And we all know that the ideal puppy doesn't exist, right? But <laughs> If you're picking a, a male and a female to do a breeding pair to do a breeding with, what is your ultimate goal for a litter? What do you like to see from young dogs uh, from a breeding you you pr from, produce? Yeah, so I would say like like you're speaking mostly about like puppies on the ground. You're you're looking at a litter of puppies and trying to to find your favorites kind of thing. Either. Yeah. How about this? De describe for me the ideal two-year-old dog. Um, you know, when you're planning a breeding and it's going to produce a litter of puppies and you're looking, you're going to raise a few of those. What do you, what do you, what's the end product you're hoping to produce? I would say for myself. And I think, you know, speaking to most people that, you know, live on farms, have livestock, have kids, have company. Um, even if it might not be frequently, um, definitely a dog that is going to alert you if you have company, but not necessarily reactive in a sense where they're aggressive in any way towards people. Uh, definitely not towards kids. They should be able to identify the difference between an, an adult versus a, a younger person or younger child that's not, not a threat. Um, being able to 
to not having a strong, strong desire to, to wander, you know, a dog that obviously fencing is still required. Um, I'm not trying to say that fencing is not required, but a dog that tends to want to stay with you, looking for your direction, looking for that guidance, looking for your approval, um, but is also able to make those decisions when, when needed and knows what to do. Um, I guess for me, for myself, those are the main things and, and is picking up on those strange things, those, those off things that are happening. Um, those would be the main points. Um, obviously all the other things that kind of come along with perks, you know, are, are things you got to work on, whether that's, you know, leash control and all those things, everything's different to everybody. But for me, that is important to be able to take a dog to whether you're going to the vet or or just going to, you want to go on a hike. Like to me, that's important to still be able to, to include those dogs in those activities, both for them and the family. Um, but I think some of that too, it might not be important to everybody, but um, it is important. And I would look for that when, you know, when I'm considering, you know, is a dog reacting too strongly to something that's different? Are they too anxious? Um, that's mm -hmm. something I would, I would steer away from. Um, right. Yeah. What, what about um, for your purposes and your preferences, um, coat type and size? What do you prefer? Yeah, I would say like, I'm okay with a dog being less than 100 pounds. I, I think that 100, you know, everyone's looking for that great, not everyone. Some people are looking for a great big dog. I just think there's a lot of challenges that come with a huge dog that people don't necessarily consider when they, they think they want a big intimidating dog. Um, so for me, I, I enjoy a dog that's, you know, a hundred pounds, maybe a little bit less. Um, I enjoy a dog that has a coat that isn't going to be spending hours upon hours of, of grooming. Mm -hmm. uh, so to me, that's pretty important. Um, and I, having a short dense coat where, you can really see that that in that body temperature is being maintained. Like if they're sitting there and they're getting snowed on and that snow's not melting, you know, they have a good undercoat. They're going to be able to, to withstand those temperatures. Um, those kind of things are pretty important to me. Um, also just having that, that more relaxed and natural tendencies to when introduced to new livestock or whether it's very young livestock or, or newborns kind of thing for them to have that reservation and that respect towards the, mm. the mother the babies themselves. I would say that's a, it's an important attribute as opposed to something that's going to come barreling in to try to investigate and figure everything out. Um, it is nice to see when they kind of sit back and take it in as opposed to, to rushing into those, those scenarios. Mm-hmm. Do you have an expectation for the breed or, you know, maybe some generalizations about the breed in terms of how quickly they mature? If I get a brand new puppy from a litter and I take it to my farm and I do all the right mix of bonding with the animals and with me as its shepherd, um, what, what can I expect from a gomper puppy or what should I expect from a gomper puppy as far as when it can be trustworthy with adult animals, when it can be trustworthy with lambs and kids and um, small animals, and when I can really expect to put it to work without it being a giant teenager. 
<laughs> That's a tough question, Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> I would say because I've seen a big range, right? Like I've I've had some that are at six months and even maybe even potentially and earlier, but I just hadn't gave them that opportunity that were completely reliable. And I've had some that have taken longer. And then you have sometimes have dogs that are reliable early on at four or six months, but then come nine months, you know, something's changed or their maturity level or other things come up and they, they kind of revert. So I think, I mean, ideally to answer your question, yeah, I, that six months is what I'd, I'd like to see, but it doesn't always happen. And I don't think that if it doesn't happen or there's regression, that it's necessarily means that the dog has failed or that the individual has done something they shouldn't. I think that it just means we have to, you know, back to the basics, stick to the basics and, and see it through because I think they will, they will get there. And I think the main thing is, is just to remind ourselves that not to rush it. Um, and that there's no, there's no added pressure or, or urgency to, to get there. And if the, the patients and, you know, all the right steps are come in place that it, it will come. Yeah. Great answer to a tough question, um, a question that I asked with sel a selfish motive, because most uh, I've had successes and failures with livestock guardian dogs, and um, it has led me to a point where like the most important factor for me is how quickly can this dog become bonded to the animals it needs to guard and be reliable with them? Like how quickly maturing is an individual or broadly a breed of, of dog. If you could tell me right now that I've got this really unique breed of livestock guardian dogs, and I will guarantee you that everyone will be working for you reliably at a year old, I would never buy another breed of dog. Yeah. You know, yeah. I just, because that has become the biggest factor for me. Um, I just can't wait two to three years for a dog to grow up and I'm have losses of livestock in between because the dog was chasing them around and being too playful at two years old. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I would say to that note, you know, if somebody comes with that concern, I would say your best indicator is looking at the parents, you know, how, how were they as they were going through the, the training process? How, how quickly did they adapt? Were they, did they have that high drive where they wanted to play or, you know, were they quickly matured mentally um, mm -hmm. beyond their their time of maturity, so to speak? So, um, I think it's really important to look at the parents and and to be aware of all those things. Is that a question that everyone asks? Maybe not, right? Like maybe yeah. it needs to be part of the the conversation when people are are looking for that livestock guardian dog. Yeah, there's a good good reminders to ask a, a breeder uh, that you're thinking about buying a puppy from. Um, I just think that there are a lot of farms, the majority of farms in North America, or at least in the U.S., and we're seeing a trend toward sm uh, more more small farms, uh, hob you know, where the owners of those farms aren't relying on the on what they produce as a hundred percent of their income, and. I think for the, most of those folks, a dog that bonds well to its stock, doesn't wander and is mature early on. Like if I could produce that, just magically produce that breed of dog, it probably wouldn't matter yeah. if they 
were a patrolling dog or a sticky dog or an aggressive dog seeking out a fight with predators or, you know, all these other things probably wouldn't matter nearly as much. I think I'd have a success on my hands if I could just make that happen. Yeah, absolutely. I think it would be, it would be nice for sure. And the nice thing about these smaller farms, like I do think they're more apt to have, it's, it's really difficult to fence in, you know, five, 600 acres reliably for a life potentially. Right. Whereas right. when, when you're working with smaller landowners, it's uh, you're, you're more apt to find some folks that have some good fencing and, and that's quite possible. But I think it's really important that the breeder has, has the resources available to them to support that training along the way um, that they are committed to, to offering that, those resources to the new puppy home because a lot of times you know people feel as though it's something that maybe they're doing wrong or the dog you know isn't but sometimes they just haven't been given the information early on or in time and then now they're already in a difficult situation mm -hmm. um, and and weren't really necessarily set up for success in the first place right right yeah how hard it, would it be for me or one of my listeners to find a, a gomper puppy in the next, over the course of the next year to 18 months, if they decided I'm going to start talking to breeders, they definitely want a gomper. Um, are, are they going to have a hard time finding one? I would say um, overall in North America, no. Uh, there's a, there's a great number of responsible breeders out there that, um, that are, they're working together for as approved breeders to abide by the same code of ethics. Um, you may mean that you, depending where you are in North America, um, if you're in the U S there's definitely more breeders that have been established there than there are in Canada. But I know that overall we're working very closely together and if necessary to, to help with transportation and that sort of thing. Um, lots of great people that are available to, to help out and and transportation i mean it's not it is it's expensive but at the same time when you think of the overall expense of a dog it's it's not always as much as you might think initially so um yeah to answer your question it, it wouldn't be that hard but there there could be some waiting involved <laughs> okay okay yeah fair answer um i what i like about the gomper and some of our more obscure livestock guardian dog breeds is that i don't at least here in North America, you don't have to spend any time sorting out what what kind of breeder is this in terms of what line or style of dog are they breeding? Are they breeding a working dog or a show dog or a performance dog or a pet dog? Like you, all those things you have to go by feel on with some more popular dog breeds. You, you just can set all that aside and pretty much know that if you're going to get an Amer if you're talking to a Armenian Gomper breeder, you're talking to a producer of working dogs. Is that accurate? Yeah, I, yeah, exactly. And that's where our working evaluations are coming into um, and making sure that it's available to people. And also when you speak to a breeder, if that's something that's important to you, it definitely helps, you know, if you bring home a puppy at 10, maybe even 12 weeks of age, whatever the age is that that's decided upon between the breeder and the, and the new family. Um, if that puppy's been exposed already to the same types of livestock you have, it's definitely going to help that transition period. 
that's not to say that they can't, you know, learn about new livestock and pick up um, and, and train and guard against things that's unfamiliar to them. But the earlier they can be exposed to that, it's definitely, it's helpful. It's, it's it eases that transition. So um, it might be a good question to ask, right? A breeder that if you have a particular type of livestock and you, you want them to be, have been exposed to that, then, then it, it's an important part of your discussion. Mm -hmm. Tell me, tell me more about the working evaluations. Is that something that's done uh, by the breeder or by the breed club? The, so the breed club um, is working on the working is working on the working evaluations, <laughs> <laughs> but essentially, yeah, um, it would be, we're planning to do it through, through video conference in the sense that, you know, everybody starts out not necessarily with a certain number of points. It's not as though there's a pass or a fail, um, obviously, unless they're not working at all with livestock, but um, in that sense, you wouldn't even have a working evaluation. But uh, the goal is to do a working evaluation after 24 months uh, when the dog has has had that chance to mature. Um, and basically would entail, you know, what is their body language like? What do they, um, how do they react when they're in a pen with the livestock? How are they reacting when even including things like when children are there or when children come on site, how do they react to them? Are they relaxed? Are they reactive? What's their body language like? Um, all those kinds of things. So in every situation possible, capturing that in video and submitting for evaluation um, in order to create the evaluation. And then it was actually be threefold fold. So it's working um, health evaluations as well as structural is the is the third part so okay. um looking at things like teeth and head structure and and alignment and all those other things that that I help see. and potential breeding individuals would have to pass those tests in order to for their offspring to be registrable with the club yeah absolutely and also even just to use the results of that test to to find a suitable mate so like you say, very difficult to find the ideal, the perfect um, dog. But at the same time, if, if we know where the strengths are and the weaknesses are, we can pair it up and match them up with another dog that's been evaluated to to complement each other. Right. So each of those categories is not a simple pass-fail because you want a gradation so that you can match th those dogs with other dogs for breeding in, in a way that complements each other. Correct. Yeah, you got it. Yeah, fascinating. That is really cool stuff. Uh, Cassandra, thank you so much for being willing to do this today. I know it's a great help to our audience to hear about some other breeds that are out there and and learn how to, to find some of those dogs. Uh, is there anything you'd like to call our attention to here on the way out the door? Maybe a place where um, listeners can get more information about the Gomper or something you have going on if you'd like to tell us about how to reach you about potential puppies in the future. Feel free to do that too. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of websites, um, in, in the USA, there's a www.gumper.org and in Canada, um, armaniangamper.ca are a couple of really good resources. And the two sites do 
link to each other um, and and breeders approved breeders and the approved and more about the approved breeder program can be found on those websites along with the history um, lots of pictures of dogs working in Armenia as well as here in North America um, registrations all that good stuff is available on the website um, we are working on another program to to help um, basically establish that that gene pool long term to help some of the shepherds in Armenia and help them with their genetics um, which oh, in the long should help overall so there's definitely some more projects in the works that way um it's it's a tough it's not always a an easy life i think when uh you're living in a place like armenia so the more we can support those folks and uh and the work they're doing the more it will help the breed overall absolutely that's really exciting thank you so much cassandra we'll put uh those websites in the description of the episode uh, so that our folks can find those anytime they need to. Thank you much, so much, Cassandra. Take care. Have a great day. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks for listening to Farm Dog. If you enjoyed this episode or any of the other episodes, please subscribe, leave us a positive review, and tell someone about it. Thanks. <laughs>